Hebrews chapter 2. Can we stand in honor of God's word this morning? How many of you love the word of God? I know that every time I open my Bible and I read it, that God can speak something to me that I never grasped, never knew. God's word is alive. Look at verse 1. It says, so we must listen very carefully to the truth that we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. And furthermore, it's not angels who'll control the future world we're talking about, for in one place the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing's left out, but we have yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he's now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them as brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I'll praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I'll put my trust in him, that is, I and the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way he could set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God, that he could offer a sacrifice that could take away the sins of people. Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he was able to help us when we are being tested. Father in heaven, as we have looked and read at Hebrews chapter 2, God, I ask that you would now encourage us through your word. And God, I ask that your word being preached would increase the faith of every hearer. God, I ask that it would supply what every need demands today, as only your word can. By your spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing through all 18 verses there with me. If chapter 1 was about who Jesus Christ is and establishing Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 2 is about who Christians are and establishing us as believers in Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, there are five warning passages in each are an attempt to stop some form of unbelief because how many of you know that 
when Jesus came, he was upsetting the ox cart of years and years and years of passed down tradition. And no one kept or even today keeps tradition like the Jewish people, like the people of Israel. And Jesus now come has upset everything and he's declaring I'm the fulfillment of all of this and you need to look to me. Your belief system should revolve around me, not the law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. And now everything has changed. And five times it confronts some form of unbelief. This is the first of the five here in chapter two. And if you want to look up the others on your own, three, chapter three, verses 12 through 19, chapter six, verses four through eight, chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, and chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. In verses one through four here in chapter two, the author wants to prevent renouncing or turning away from the gospel. Can you not see why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1.16? Because it's the gospel in the gospel of Jesus Christ that there's power. And I just want to say this. If it is not about Jesus Christ, it is not about the gospel. I don't care how close it is. I don't care how similar it is. If it's not about Jesus Christ, it's not about the gospel and it holds no power. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that holds power, and it is the gospel as it's being preached that establishes those who believe. It establishes your faith. It is the power of God unto salvation. So you, you got saved because you heard the gospel preached, and it establishes you as it's continued to be preached. And the argument the author makes is very, very clear. Listen carefully to the truth that was heard. How many of you know the gospel is truth? Sets it apart from anything else that could be preached or spoken. It's the truth, and it's a truth that can set you free. If the old covenant delivered through angels was firm, how much more the great salvation through Jesus Christ? And it goes on to say that God confirmed the gospel through signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Go to Mark 16 to see a similar portion of Scripture Mark 16, I'm doing my best not to hurry because I've got some things that I believe God has spoken to my heart and I want to make sure that I take my time in getting there. I don't know about you, but I'm an impatient guy and when God's revealed things to me, I just want to rush right to him, but I know it'll benefit you if we build in getting to him. Look at Mark 16. I believe we're going to begin reading in 15, yeah. It says, and then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, or we'll say the gospel to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They'll speak in tongues or in new languages. They'll be able to handle snakes with safety, and no, we're not doing any snake handling. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. Also notice that the gifts of the Holy Spirit confirm that salvation is through Jesus. And I think it's real important that we, we know this. Um, I believe 
that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are fully in operation today, and I'll make a statement and say that we need them just as much now at the end of the church age as we did at the onset of the church age. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I am so sorry for all the flaky things that you may have experienced in church days past. I'm so sorry for maybe abuses that you've seen. But I want you to see today as we look at just a few portions of Scripture just why the gifts of the Holy Spirit are so important and how they point to salvation being through Jesus Christ. So go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Because I think it's real important that we see these things. says, now, dear brothers and sisters, I'm in verse 1, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean when it says no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit? Well, they were calling all of their idols Lord. And now that they are saved and now that they have received the work that Jesus did, his death, his burial, his resurrection, now that they've received Jesus Christ, when they're declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, only the Spirit of the living God could reveal that to them. And so what Paul was saying is, you were calling all your idols, Lord. And the books of Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, are, they're, they're correcting abuses that were going on in the churches. Because these people came out of gross idolatry, gross paganism, into a salvation with Jesus Christ, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were exploding, and now Paul is bringing balance. He doesn't want them to misunderstand the gifts, and he wants them to know that only, only could you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord if the Spirit of the living God was on the inside of you. Can you see how the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how salvation through Jesus is going hand in hand here? Go to a portion of Scripture that's become some of my favorite in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 8. Notice the context here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Verse 12, one of my favorites. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven why, why which we must be saved. Let's just declare it for all to hear. Salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. God has given no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Can you see the gifts of the Holy Spirit working and uh, alongside the salvation that's available to us in Jesus Christ? And the gifts of the Holy Spirit confirm 
Again, that salvation is through Jesus. And Jesus said it, said it best in, in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some have tried to tackle that verse, but it's very, very difficult to tackle. How do you, how do you tackle it? We know where the Father is. The Father's in heaven. Our Father who aren't in heaven. That's how we're supposed to pray. So if we want to go to heaven, if heaven is our desire, the only way to get there is through Jesus Christ. I don't think this is rocket science. I think this is pretty clearly spelled out in Scripture. But many are trying to tackle it because they want to believe that there are many ways to heaven. Many ways to heaven. Anytime that you want your way or you want another way, it is, I believe, rebellious when God has provided a way. If your goal is heaven, then I think I would want to, to, to accept and to receive the vehicle that God's given us, and that is his son. Jesus has made a way where there was no way. Jesus has provided a way. Jesus has provided salvation. But some are so selfish in their humanity that they want another way. They don't like being told what to do. No wonder why so many are harassed by the enemy because they so struggle to submit to God. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. A lot of people are harassed because they can't submit. And if we can't submit to a God here on earth, then why should we expect to spend eternity with him in heaven? I believe it's clear through Scripture that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. I want to look at some powerful truths now, and it's where I've been wanting to go all along. Look at verses 14 through 18 in Hebrews 2, and if, if there's anything that I want you to grasp this morning, it's what I'm going to share in the next couple of moments that we have together. Look at 14 through 18, and there's a, a mouthful here, but we're going to do our best to, to pull out some truths that I think could really help. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves, as slaves to the fear of dying. Very important, you remember that. We also know that the Son didn't come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Okay, let's break this down. The devil had the power of death, okay? Jesus became human so he could break the power of the devil. Jesus became human so he could set us free from a fear of dying. Even Romans 8 verse 15 places an emphasis on this. We just sang it. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're, we can now cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba, is a, an, an, it's an amazing term. It's an old Aramaic term. And it's amazing because it's only in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 14, I believe it's verse 23, don't hold me to that, but it's right around there, where you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out to his Abba, Father. And it was a term that a toddler would use just first learning to speak, would cry out like 
like a, a kid in America, a toddler would say dada. This is that kind of a term. It's, it's Abba. So like a child crying out to a father, Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can today as believers, we're no longer slaves to fear. No longer slaves to fear. And notice that what Jesus did, he did to set free all who had a fear of dying. Why is it so important as believers that that fear of dying be broken off of our lives? Why is it so critical? Because if you have a fear of dying once you become a Christian, you will struggle to live as a Christian. Because it's in dying that we live. And if you have a fear of dying, then it will be difficult for you to go everywhere that the Holy Spirit wants to lead you. Because he is always going to be leading you in places where you die so that Christ can be alive in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ Jesus. Or the New Living says, Your real life is now hidden in Christ Jesus. If you struggle with dying, then as a Christian, you're going to struggle with living. Church, get this. If you get anything today, please get this. The reason why we struggle in our Christian walks is because we refuse to die to areas. And where we refuse to die and our flesh dominates, the life of God is not there and it's not present. It can't be found. God, where are you? And he's saying, where are you? I'm waiting at the altar for you. Where are you? I've got the flames on the altar. Get on this altar. Get on this altar. We think the altar's a place where we shed things. We're not snakes molting. We're not snakes shedding our skins. The Bible says we're living sacrifices. We get on the altar. We don't come to it and try to shed something there. We get on the altar and it's burned up there. And the reason why a lot of change doesn't happen is because we refuse to part with this area and that area and we don't have victory in this area or that area because we can't surrender it to God. It's ours and we won't part with it. And in that area, he's not Lord. And in that area, we're not submitted to him and the enemy's harassing us because we can't submit ourselves to God. We can't resist the devil. There's no power to because we won't submit. And in our strong human nature, our stubborn human nature, we struggle in those areas. Every area we won't submit. Every area we won't lay down. Every area we refuse to die to, that's the area where our flesh dominates and God cannot. It's in dying that we live. It's in losing your life that you find it. Nothing's found where you won't lose your life. Nothing's gained where you won't lose your life. Nothing. Christianity is a dying process. Jesus died once and for all. We die daily. Paul said, I crucify my flesh daily. Why? Because he had to. He had to. He didn't have a choice and neither do we. And if church is just this assembly of comfort for you, it's a place to just have goosebumps and it's a, it's a place to never deal with anything and never surrender anything, then you are gonna struggle in your Christian walk. You will not see gains that are available to you because you won't go there. You won't have anything to do with it. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable, God, where you're leading me. Well, don't worry. Wherever the Holy Spirit leads, it's truth. He leads and guides in all truth. God's not leading you into some false way. In fact, your flesh knows it's not false. That's why it's putting up such a struggle. Everything that's real, everything that's genuine, there's a confrontation with it. There's always a confrontation with it. Your flesh, the Spirit of God. 
lies and truth. Always confrontation. I've gotten in conversations with people about Jesus Christ, about Christianity, and all of a sudden they're irritated and they're raising their voice. And I'm thinking, well, we were just having a nice, peaceful conversation. All of a sudden they're raising their voice. And I'm thinking, because confrontation is going on. Confrontation's going on. And right now your flesh is being confronted. Right now your flesh is being confronted by the spirit of the living God. And he's saying, you give me that area. You lay your life down. I've got purposes and plans for it, and I can't do a thing with your life as long as it's yours, and I can only do something with it when it becomes mine. It's in dying that we live. Don't forget it. It's in dying that we live. And if you're not living like you think you should as a Christian, I would suggest that you're not dying. When's the last time you found yourself weeping at an altar, repentant and broken because of an area that you have struggled to give away to God, and in a moment realized that you should? There is no faith without death. There is no resurrection without a burial. And we want to jump right to the life, but none of us want to die. And everything about the Christian walk is about dying. Everything about the Christian victorious life, but it's in dying that we get there. No crown without a cross, no life without a death, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It's all about death. It's all about death and not some morbid, dark, depressing death. It is liberty and it's freedom that awaits you on the other side of that thing that you're dying to, that you're surrendering, that you're yielding to. You don't have it figured out. I don't have it figured out. We're all dying. We're all dying. And it's in dying that we live. It's in dying that we live. Only the Holy Spirit could help make sense of this or this just seems like a crazy message. Notice that the focus of a believer's life is how we live and not how we'll die. The unbelievers, like we just read, they have a fear of dying, but not the believer. The believers died, for you died, and your real life is now hidden in Christ, Colossians 3.3. 3. You died. Why are, we, why are we talking about this? I thought you died. Why are, we t- why are we talking about this? I mean, that's like somebody that has quit something and they're still complaining about the thing that they quit. I thought you quit. Why are you still talking about it? like a, a, a guy and a gal that had been dating. They're still talking about each other. I thought you broke up. Why are we still talking about this? Why are we still talking? Because in your heart you didn't break up. In your hearts you still want to cater to your flesh. You don't want to surrender to Christ. That's why those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What is it, Romans 8.8? 8? You can't please God in the flesh. You won't please God. In the flesh, you tell your flesh what to do. We're going to church, just shut up. That's it, we're fasting. <laughs> you, you tell your flesh what to do. It doesn't call the shots for you. They that are led by the Spirit of God are called sons of God. Not they that are led by their flesh and appear to be Christians. They that are led by the Spirit of God. So where is God leading you? What's God speaking to you? This is good preaching, Pastor. I needed to hear this today. Don't know if I'm coming back, but I really need to hear it. So let's finish with Hebrews 2.18. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we're being tested. I think the biggest lie that the enemy could ever play is that God's not listening and There's no way that God could possibly know. 
In fact, I've been reading a lot of N.T. Wright on the book of Hebrews. I don't know if I'm ever going to give that Bible. If, if any of you are thinking about doing a Bible study on the book of Hebrews, I don't know if I'll ever cough it up. It's been just amazing. But N.T. Wright goes so far as to say, and I think I'm going to mention it in a few chapters um, from now, but he, he, he said um, for us to think that Jesus ceased being human when he was resurrected is to miss the whole purpose of why he came. He said it is his being fully human and fully God that he understands what we went through. And we're going to look at this in a moment in Isaiah 53. But Jesus didn't cease being human when he rose from the dead. He was a resurrected human being. That's what it made so amazing. Jesus wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. He said flesh and blood you know, does, doesn't, doesn't sit here and eat with you. Luke, look at the end of Luke's gospel. He said, you got anything to eat? Why did Jesus do that? Why did the resurrected Lord, why was he eating with the disciples after he rose from the dead? To let them know, I'm not a ghost. But this body that I have, I'm the first fruits of this kind of body because you're going to have one too one day. This body's not bound. I'll just, I, you don't, doors aren't going to hold me. And in our minds, we're thinking, well, he must have been a ghost. He must have been a spirit because he would just show up in a room when the doors were locked. No, you don't understand what God did. You don't understand how powerful Jesus' resurrected body was. It was no longer bound to death, hell, and the, and the grave anymore. That's why he was eating with them. You guys got anything to eat? What a strange request. The resurrected Lord's hungry. What a, he, he didn't do that for him. He did that for them. You got anything to eat? You know, this flesh and blood. That's why he told Doubting Thomas, go ahead, stick your, stick your finger. If he was a ghost, why would he have said that? Wow, I went right through him. Why would he have said that? Put your fingers in my nail prints. Put your hand in my side. Why would he have said that if he was a ghost? He wasn't a ghost. But in our humanness, we're trying to wrap our mind around a resurrected being, that one that was, was raised by the Father from the dead. We struggle grasping it. I'm telling you, Jesus was fully human when he, when he was resurrected. Fully human, understand that, because it's really important to understand that. Jesus was the first fruits, and we're going to be looking at it in, in the weeks to come. Jesus didn't come to help angels. He came to help us. Angels got all the help that they want, and if they don't like the help that they're getting, then they're fallen angels, and that's not good. Jesus became like us to help us so he could take away our sins even better because of all that he went through. He can help us when we are tested. So whatever you're facing, to tell God that he does not know what you're going through misses it. The Message Bible words it best, and I, I uh, have it here. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. I love that. And would be able to help where help was needed. And as long as we're human beings on this earth, not yet changed in the twinkling of an eye, how many of you know we all need help? That is why he can be an ever present help in times of trouble. He can help you everywhere you need it. Everywhere you need it, he can help you. He supplies all your needs according to his riches and glory. He can help where help is needed. Let's finish with Isaiah 53. Maybe it's been a while since you've looked at these verses. I thought it fitting that we finish there today. 
Isaiah 53. I'm just going to read 3 through 5. I know I've thrown a lot of scripture at you, but there's not a theologian that would question that these verses refer to Jesus Christ. It says he was despised and rejected. You ever been despised? You ever been rejected? Jesus was. A man of sorrows. He was acquainted, I love the new living, with deepest grief. You ever been grieving? You ever been sorrowful? Jesus was. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care. We didn't care. Yet, it was in our weaknesses, it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. How many of you know when Jesus came, he didn't have weaknesses and he didn't have sorrows. It was ours. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Jesus took our weaknesses. He took our sorrows. He took our rebellion. He took our sins so that we could be healed. There's not an area that you could possibly struggle with as a human being that Jesus did not take. Where did he take it? He took it to the cross. And it died with him and it was buried with him. And when he rose, as we believe and accept what Jesus did for us, we rise. We rise from our sorrows and we rise from our grief and we rise from our rejection and we rise from everything that we could struggle with as a human being. And the difference for the believers, not that we're not exposed to those things, the difference for the believers, we're not living there anymore doesn't mean that we never face times of, of depression or, or grief, but we're not grieving for the rest of our lives, and we're not depressed for the rest of our lives because Jesus took it. Jesus took it. And when you believe and when you accept what Jesus did, the Bible says you are saved by grace through faith. You are saved by that which God provided for you, and by faith believing, you lay hold of him and say, I believe Jesus did it for me, and I want that power working in and through my life to make you perfect, no, to change you forever, yes, to transform you, yes. You're always going to have your flesh. Until you see him face to face, you're going to have your flesh. But God can help you everywhere that you need it. And Jesus experienced everything that you could possibly experience as a human being because he was fully human fully human. That's the gospel. That's the message of the cross. That's why there's power in the gospel. And as you accept it and as you believe it, you're changed. Now, if you sit there and you think about it, well, man, that's just crazy that God would come to earth, become man, would die, would be buried, would rise again, and that if we believe that what he did was for us too, not just for the people that were alive then, but for everybody that would ever live, man, that's crazy. Yup, faith. Faith is crazy. Dr. Chan wrote Crazy Love. I think he needs to write Crazy Faith. In fact, Dr. Chan, if you ever hear this message, write Crazy Faith. <laughs> crazy, because faith is crazy. Faith is crazy. The Bible says faith is an evidence of things we can't see, substance of things we hope for. We'll see that in a few, in a few months. Crazy. But at some point in the ballgame, you jump and you get crazy like the rest of us. And you find that it's true and more. That it's liberating and more. That it is freeing and more. 
freedom so amazing that you have to regularly submit yourself to Christ so you don't get weird. Because people sometimes don't know what to do with freedom. That's why sometimes people come to church and God sets them free and then they disappear for a while because it feels so good what God did for them. They fail, they fail to realize that they got to stay plugged in. Man, stay plugged into the power source. That's why Jesus said, remain in me, abide in me. And so I want to pray for you. Don't know where you're at. Don't know what you're going through. Those of you that are watching live don't know what you could be facing. I just know that Jesus can, how does Joyce Meyer say it? Jesus can heal you everywhere you hurt. Jesus can supply every need. He can meet every need because he experienced every need. And the lie is that there's nothing that God could do about your situation or what you're going through or what you're struggling with or what. Well, then I guess Jesus forgot to take some things to the cross. He didn't know that in 2018 there would be a person that would come up with something new that he didn't pay for. As God, he must have been forgetful. As God, he must have left something out. And how many of you know that is a complete and a total lie? Jesus left nothing out on the cross. He paid for it all on the cross, all of it on the cross. Whether you're struggling with rejection or rebellion or whatever, he can heal you everywhere you're hurt this morning. I want to be able to pray for you. I'm going to start praying, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond.